Good morning and uh, welcome. Welcome to our worship. The time when we acknowledge the worth of ourselves, of one another and of all creation. Some opening words from David Paul. We come together this morning to remind one another. To rest for a moment on the forming edge of our lives. To resist the headlong tumble into the next moment. Until we claim for ourselves awareness and gratitude. Taking the time to look into one another's faces and see their communion. The reflection of our own eyes. This house of laughter and silence, memory and hope is hallowed by our presence together. And as I light our chalice candle, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian community, some words from Christine Robinson. We gather this hour as people of faith, with joys and sorrows, gifts and needs. We light this beacon of hope, sign of our quest for truth and meaning in celebration of the life we share together. The uh, first reading I'd like to share with you this morning uh, is taken from the autobiography of uh, Richard Holloway, who was the former Bishop of Edinburgh. Um, It's called Leaving Alexandria. I'll say a little bit more about Richard later on. The first... um, part is actually not some words by Richard Holloway, but by uh, Father Hubert Kelly, who was the founder of the Society of the Sacred Mission, which was the religious order that uh, uh, Richard Holloway went to join when he was 14. Hard to imagine nowadays. But he went off to college um, uh, to train to be an Anglican priest when he was 14. And as you're probably aware, Richard, having been at the sort of centre of um, the establishment, if you like, in the Anglican Church, has always been on the edge, and now is very much on the edge. But I think because that questioning that he has maintained actually began with the, the attitudes that Father Kelly um, put into the people who were running the Society of the Sacred Mission. And this is what Father Kelly wrote in 1893. He said the Society of the Sacred Mission was inaugurated to start a college which would train for the ministry young men with no money and no special education. I was expected to follow the customary system. I never dreamt of doing so. These men were going to be teachers of a faith given in a creed. This is said to be correct and that incorrect. But I do not care about these words. I would rather ask, why is this doctrine vital and that fatal to a man's soul and capacity to live? Someone said it was, and he ought to know. Very well, we must go to him and find out why he found it so. Then each man must look into his own soul, find in his own life its questions and difficulties, its perplexities and diversities. And I think that's what has uh, stayed with Richard Holloway throughout his life. 
And the next section is taken from a bit further on in the book when he talks about, uh, as a young man, trying to escape the, the poverty of his youth by uh, two ways of escape. One was uh, walking in the hills around his hometown and the other was going to the pictures, uh, seeing American movies. And he writes this. I don't think my walking in the hills and my movie-going were unrelated. Both were prompted by a need for something that did not have a name, a longing for something that constantly eluded the searcher. How can you make yourself one with a landscape? You can tramp over it, become so familiar with its contours that you never need a map. But you can never possess it. It is always eluding your desire, just out of reach, beyond your possessing. I did not know the word at the time, or the, that you never need a map. But you can never possess it. It is always eluding your desire, just out of reach, beyond your possessing. I did not know the word at the time, or the idea that lay behind it, but on the hills... I was experiencing latency, the sense of something hidden behind what is seen. How can you find words for what is beyond sound, make visible what vanishes when seen? Poets sometimes come close, and he quotes from Edwin Muir's Transfiguration. Did we see that day the unseeable, one glory of the everlasting world, Perpetually at work, though never seen. And Holloway continues. The hills prompted that yearning. I was looking for something beyond myself, something out there that would take me out of in here, the life that was going on in my head. I was looking for transcendence, the beyond that is sometimes encountered in the midst of things, usually when we are not looking for it. This is the stab of awareness that causes us to turn on our heels to catch the shadow that is behind us. It is the sense of a presence beyond any knowing that we reach out towards. And it can be experienced as loneliness. We are missing something, either because it is not there or because we have not yet found it. It was neither the movies nor the hills that gave me what I thought I was looking for. It was something else entirely. If you want to know what that was, then read the book. (laughs) The second reading that I'd like to share with you this morning is taken uh, from a a Buddhist website uh, written by someone called Bodhipaksa. It's on keeping a meditation journal. Mindfulness is about knowing where we are, being in the moment, and also about maintaining an awareness of where we have been, reflection, and where we are going, having goals. A meditation journal can help us with all of those areas of awareness, helping us to be a more unified, to have a more unified awareness of ourselves. 
We may make efforts to be in the moment while we are meditating, to be aware of our experience as it unfolds in the eternal moment, and allowing our inner beauty to manifest. Or perhaps we become habitually vague in our practice and spend a lot of our time drifting in thought, making insufficient effort to bring ourselves back to the current experience. Keeping a meditation journal helps us have a more definite sense of what is actually going on. When we sit down after meditation and take a few minutes to journal what we've been experiencing, it makes it pretty obvious how effective we've really been. If we examine our experience honestly and with a desire to learn, then we become much more aware of what that practice actually is. We can become more aware of our weaknesses and our strengths and have a much more penetrating understanding of what we need to be working on. A journal also allows us to look back at our experience as it has changed over a period of time. We can review several days, weeks or months of our practice and learn about the patterns that our consciousness follows. Perhaps we'll discover that we are lazier than we thought, or perhaps that we try too hard, or perhaps even that we fluctuate in our efforts. We may discover that there are particular distractions that are much more common than we had recalled. We commonly also discover, especially when we're a little down, we remembered. And our journaling can help us to set goals. It is not that we try to pin down our experience before it happens. That's rarely, if ever, going to work. And it's more likely to result in frustration than in any progress. Instead, what we're trying to do in setting goals is to develop a stronger sense of where we want to go. <coughs> Through looking back at our past experience, we can see what we need to work on. Perhaps it's forgiveness or patience that we need to develop. Perhaps it's more persistence or more calmness. Whatever changes we want to make, having clear goals will help us attain them. Our goals become the magnetic north pole that allows us to navigate through our experience in order to get where we want to go. Some thoughts from Bodhipaksa. As some of you are aware, um, during the week I work as one of the matrons at St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, running the uh, HIV unit there. And a few weeks ago I had to read 36 CVs written by people who were trying to convince me that I should employ them as a staff nurse in our clinic. Some of the applic applicants had produced the minimum required. Others had simply copied and pasted from a previous electronic application without even bothering to uh, edit their offering. So although I was looking for someone to work in an HIV clinic, one person wrote, I have several years of experience in ophthalmology, therefore I have the relevant experience for the job. They didn't even have the savvy to try to relate HIV to eye disease. We do have a, a weekly eye clinic, so she could have done. 
Others wrote with passion about their desire to work in the speciality and demonstrated how the skills they had developed in another field could be transferred to our department. Those were the ones that I called to interview. And I'd also just finished reading the autobiography of Richard Holloway. As I said before, erstwhile Bishop of Edinburgh and Primus, leader of the Scottish Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in Scotland. Richard was not only the bishop who ordained me as an Anglican priest, but he was also a good friend to me and the other Franciscan brothers that I lived and worked with in Edinburgh. He had also been the priest who, through his writings and television series that he presented in the early 80s, had tempted me back to the church. He was the voice of liberal, inclusive Christianity. Now, interestingly, the last time I saw him was at Hampstead Unitarian Church, where he was giving a talk on post-Christianity. When I spoke to him afterwards, I said, You must be a very powerful spiritual man, Father. When you laid hands on me at my ordination, you obviously passed on your agnosticism. But reading these CVs and Richard's autobiography made me think about how writing can help us to clarify our thoughts and learn more about who we are. It was obvious from reading the CVs that some of the applicants had thought very little about their passions and motivation beyond that of wanting or perhaps just needing a job. Others had used the task to reflect on both the skills they had, increase their self-knowledge and to identify their goals for the future. In telling his chronological story, Richard Holloway reveals to us, but perhaps more importantly to himself, his emotional and psychological story. Reflecting on his early teenage years, he wrote, as we heard earlier, I don't think that my walking in the hills and my movie going were unrelated. Both were prompted by a need for something that constantly eluded the searcher. I was looking for transcendence, the beyond that, that is sometimes encountered in the midst of things, usually when we are not looking for it. Encountered in the midst of things, usually when we are not looking for it. Now, when something happens that we're not looking for, it can be startling. It can make us sit up and take note. But I think it can also go unnoticed. We don't see it or experience it simply because we don't register it. We don't see because we're not looking. A few years ago, I started to sketch Like most things in my life, I didn't pursue it. But when I was sketching, I began to see more clearly. I noticed things. I saw things in context. I paid attention. I believe that writing can have the same effect. It can make us pay attention to our lives. The writer and poet Ben Okri, in his book A Time for New Dreams, writes this 
Writers are the very sign of the psychic health of a people. They are the barometer of the vitality of the spirit of a nation. They are the beacon on the promontory, signalling that here dwells a people strong enough to face its truths, brave enough to confront its demons, confident enough to diagnose the necessary drastic healing required for its malaise. They symbolise a people creative enough to dream new possibilities that will expand the psychic and moral resources of the land and free enough to launch into great new adventures of the spirit. In this way, true writers herald discovery, productivity, fertility and resistance to spiritual despair. They embody that sublime sense of fearlessness in the challenging enterprise of civilization. They are the beacon on the promontory signalling that here dwells a people strong enough to face its truths, brave enough to confront its demons, confident enough to diagnose the necessary drastic healing required for its malaise. Okri is, of course, writing here about what we might call professional writers, or perhaps an even better description would be vocational writers, those who really see and reflect on the society of which they are part. But I believe he is also implying that writing can help each one of us to face our own truth, confront our own demons. In a passage later in the same book, he writes, Knowledge of self ought to be the great project of our lives. Knowing ourselves, we will know others. Only by knowing ourselves can we begin to undo the madness we unleash on the world in our wars, our destruction of the environment, our division, our desire to dominate others. I suspect that most of us don't unleash our madness on the world, but we can unleash our demons on our own little worlds. In different religious traditions, the practice of keeping a spiritual journal, writing about our spiritual journey, is seen as a potentially useful spiritual discipline. In the reading we heard earlier from the Buddhist writer, The writer is looking particularly at keeping a meditation journal, but I believe that this kind of reflective practice can be expanded to our everyday interactions. To slightly misquote the author, if we examine our experience honestly and with a desire to learn, then we become much more aware of what our daily interactions actually are we can become more aware of our weaknesses and our strengths and have a much more penetrating understanding of what we need to be working on. A journal also allows us to look back at our experience as it has changed over a period of time. Thinking about this subject prompted me to go to the great guru of the 21st century, Google. And I googled spiritual journey to see what people had to say on the subject. In only two seconds, Google had provided me with one and a half million articles. 
I didn't read them all, but I did find an article written in 2003 by Michael Ann Haywood that provided a simple, practical approach. It's simply entitled, How to Keep a Spiritual Journal. And although it's written from a Christian perspective, it could be adapted for followers of any spiritual tradition. And she begins by quoting from another writer, Mary Warren, on the subject, who says, A journal is not a diary. For example, this is an American example, I went to the Braves game yesterday and they lost their seventh game in a row. It would be an entry in a diary. I must be out of my mind remaining a Braves fan when they crush my hopes every year without fail might well be a journal entry. A diary is all about what. A journal is all about so what and what now. Haywood comments that a journal is a helpful way of keeping up with our spiritual journey. A spiritual journal is different from a regular journal. It's a written record of personal reactions on spiritual matters. A journal has benefit in itself, providing a cathartic dumping ground for thoughts, feelings and ideas. But a journal also has benefit in where it leads us. Honest and regular journaling can be an intellectual or spiritual aid, cultivating deepening understandings, clarification of thoughts and new discoveries. It can be a kind of rear-view mirror, focusing on one's spiritual history. But it can also be a sort of archaeological dig, a focus point of discoveries. We remember a very small percentage of what happens to us each day. We also forget most of our feelings and reactions to what happens to us. If we write these feelings down in a notebook, loose-leaf binder, fancy-bound black journal, blank journal book, or increasingly in a personal locked file on a computer, we have the ability to see even months or years from now connections that can almost blow us away. She describes the benefits of keeping a spiritual journal and just highlights those points of clarification, organisation of thoughts and actually just taking that time on a regular basis to sit and reflect. When should we do it? Well, depends on who you are. Some people do it every morning, some people in the evening, some people once a week, some people once a month. The important thing is to have some kind of structure that you're going to stick to. And how do you get started? Well, it's a bit like learning to swim. You have to get into the water. So you get started by starting. And when first starting that spiritual journal, it's helpful to write down why you're doing it, what prompted you to start, what you hope for in the exercise. And make a commitment to revisit your process at the end of the period of time. Hopefully such trial periods will demonstrate the ongoing value of journal keeping. Of course, keeping a spiritual journal is not for everyone. 
Some people find it more helpful to have a, a friend or a group of friends that they can share their deepest thoughts and strivings with. There are times in our lives when a journal can be useful and times when it may be less so. Personally, I kept a spiritual journal for a long time. Currently, I don't. But in preparing this talk, it's made me think about it again. But whether we keep a journal or not, I believe that it is useful to have some period of the day, week or month, to simply sit quietly and reflect. But like my applicants for the job, we must use this time not just to look at our faults and failings, but also on the successes in our lives, the spiritual skills we have developed, and how we can use them when we find ourselves in a different setting. Amen. And some closing words from T.S. Eliot. What we call a beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Let us go in peace. Amen.